0: And family law talk radio show. I'm attorney Vince Davis, and joining me tonight is our usual guest host, uh, Raj Matani. Attorney Raj Matani. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, well, we've got the answers. Family law legal experts we can answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, and spousal support. Good evening, Raj. How are you today? Doing great, fans. It's good to be on with you again. Great. So on this Wednesday evening, what are we going to be discussing?
1: Uh, We're going to be
0: discussing sort of two opposite
1: but sometimes intertwined topics uh, as always, child custody, child visitation, is our uh, favorite topic to discuss on the show. Uh, we're specifically going to talk about an interesting case that our office has been handling um, where there's been dueling allegations and uh, the appointment of a minor, uh, an attorney for the minor child. So I want to go over how that sort of came about and the parameters of that uh, appointment. And then I want to discuss something I've spoken about before, which are uh, a rising trend, both here in California and nationally, uh, the use of prenuptial and postnuptial agreements. So uh, I think we're going to have a few callers tonight as well, a few uh, questions coming on the line. So uh, I'm ready to get started when you are, Vince, and we can we can get uh, get the show rolling.
2: Hello.
0: Hello? Raj, can you hear me?
2: Yeah,
1: I can hear you.
0: Okay. I thought I was having some technical difficulties there, some software problems. Mm -hmm. Well, Raj, tonight um, we've discussed what we're going to be talking about with the listeners. Um, Let me see... If there's some callers on the line, there's one caller on the line right now. Let's before we launch into our custody and visitation uh, discussion and our prenuptial and postnuptial discussion, I'd like to take a call from area code six two six. Oh, actually, this the caller just went off, so we can go ahead and start talking about custody. <laughs> Raj. tell us about the case. Tell us about the case you wanted to talk about. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. If people,
1: if people call in, don't be too gun shy. We're not, we're not, uh, we're aggressive attorneys, but we're not aggressive on the phone. Um, so we, Vince, uh, you and I did a, have been mired in in a pretty interesting case over the last uh, week or so. We had a client come into our office. I think she spoke to you directly, Vince. But um, had a client come in with a really interesting problem. Uh, the fact of the case were um, mother and father were were separated, and uh, uh, you know they had given they had given custody to to the uh, to the father, and there's a, you know an attorney who was appointed to represent the minor, and this minor's attorney was really good and got a, a lot of positive results for the father, um, but uh, I think thanks to Vince's good advocacy and I think partially some of my research. Um, you know, we kind of held the judge's feet to the fire, and upon the revelation of a a few different code sections and case law, it was really um, enlightening, and uh, we were able to get a great great result for our client. Um, So the thing that people need to know, the way that we always start out our cases, or our our discussions every week, are talking about what the state and what the, the judge's and the objective of California family law is with, respect to child custody and visitation, so uh, Family Code Section 3020, I should say, uh, spells out that you know the court wants to make uh, decisions that are in the best interest of the children. And uh, when doing this, they look at a variety of factors. They look at uh, a variety of situations and try to find out what's the best situation that allows for children to have a frequent and continuing relationship with both parents, and facilitate a custody and visitation exchange that allows the bond of the child and the relationship of the child to continue. Um, and in doing that, it's the responsibility of the parent who has primary custody to make sure that uh, all the parameters of the court order are maintained and that the other parent has a chance to interact with their child. And you know, we ran into a situation here where sort of the other parent was uh, interfering with that situation and not allowing not allowing the custody and visitations to, to happen, and uh, because he had the power, according to the court papers and this minors' counsel, uh, it, it put our our client at a significant disadvantage. And um, what clients need to know about is that they have to, you know, do their research, look at the family code, look look at all the factors that are in their case, and make sure that you tell the judge and be assertive with them about uh, what the nature of the of the case is, what the factors that are going on, and uh, really what evidence the other side has to prove their point, and as we saw today, you know, the other side really didn't really didn't have it with them.
0: You know, I um, I'm always surprised uh, when I'm in family law court how a lot of you know very good family law pr- practitioners want to rely on gut-level feelings. They don't want to rely on evidence, the evidentiary rules, and about, you know, the rules that we have for procedure and notice. It's almost as if sometimes you, you, you get like there's, you know, uh, two therapists instead of two attorneys arguing on the case. And what I like to do, Raj, I like to, you know, play by the rules, and I like, when necessary, remind the people what the rules are, uh, because the rules are there for a purpose. So it's very important that when you go to court, you have evidence and you have admissible evidence. Uh, a lot of people just think they can show up to court with pieces of paper, letters, etc., and that the judge should look at it, and, uh, and they get upset when the judge doesn't look at it. And one of the reasons why I think people are frustrated with our judicial system, specifically in family law, because they have their own sense of what is fair and just. The problem right. is, is that their sense, their sense in a lot of, in many many occasions, doesn't line up with what the law is, and they get frustrated because uh, the law is not supporting their position, or they don't think that the law is fair and just. And that's really an unfortunate, um, you know, it's a frustrating feeling. I can see how people, you know, sometimes feel that way, but they have to know that when they're going into the courtroom, there's a, you know, a body of law. There are set rules with procedure and evidence that we all have to follow. And that, you know, the family code, we we have to follow the family code. And sometimes I get looks from people as if, oh, you're, you're citing the rules, you're, you know, you're a knucklehead. Mm -hmm. Well, and and, and I don't mind that because I like to play by the rules. It's the same thing if we were playing an NFL football game, look, there are certain rules. And when people don't follow the rules, the, the, you know, the referee or the umpire throws the yellow flag penalty. And I think it's, you know, rules, you know, I forget the exact quote, but it's something like, you know, we're a nation of laws, not of men, something like that. And and, and and basically it's saying, look, we have to follow the rules because the rules level the playing field for everyone. Now in family law, um, you know, we're dealing a lot of times with a lot of equity and a lot of children's issues. And sometimes some people feel that they can bend those rules because of that. And I'm one of those you know, people that, you know, I understand Mm -hmm. that, but I think that we do have to follow the rules. So in this particular case that you're mentioning, um, I, I think that it's one of those cases where a lot of things had happened on the case before we were hired. And unfortunately, a lot of bad things had happened for our client. There were a lot of bad rulings. And, you know, it's very difficult to come in and change those rulings, even if, uh, you know, we think, or the client thinks that they're wrong, and so we have to pick up the case and we have, from where it is and try to work with what the evidence they have. Now, in this particular case, you know, um, some people would say, well, your client has unclean hands, and you know, uh, but the father had you know a bunch of unclean hands, and uh, it's it's sometimes easy when the other side is doing things that are not right or violating court orders himself, um, you know, when we were able to season those situations and show the judge, you know, that things had, had changed since uh, the court had made some very extensive and well thought out orders based upon, you know, maybe some evidence that may have not been quite admissible, but was, you know, nobody objected to it and it came in. So we're trying to level the playing field, get our client back in the ball game, so to speak. And uh it's been, you know, we've been on the case now three days. Um, and we're going And back we've been in court three days. Yeah, and we're going back tomorrow for a fourth day. I don't know if I told you that yet. But uh No, no, you, so haven't, we'll be back uh, to... you haven't. Yes, I'll be back in court tomorrow on the case at, at uh two thirty.
1: Oh my gosh. Well I, you know, one of the really interesting interesting things that we ran into in this matter was, um, like I had stated earlier, was the appointment of a, of a special attorney just for the minor child. Uh, in family law, people are, you know, I shouldn't say people, litigants are always saying, well, my child tells me that this is how, what they want to do, or this is how they feel about the situation. And to a certain extent, what the child feels matters. Uh, if the child is of a certain age and uh, the general acceptance is about age 14, or uh, you can ask for a special examination. Uh, it's the child's maturity, but uh, once you pretty much a teenage child can begin to express uh, where they want to go. Uh, some people might know the, uh, the famous international case between uh, Madonna and her, I guess, ex-husband, Guy Ritchie, um, the, their case is multilayered with jurisdiction issues in England and the U.S., but... Uh, you know what happened there is their their 15 year old son said, "Hey, I want to live live with dad in England," and uh, the English courts said he was mature enough and and uh, you know, sort of t- took his position uh, with a lot of credibility because of how maturely he expressed himself. Uh, that's in great contrast to where we were today, where we have a very very young child uh, and you know the court according to Family Code section. 3150, if the court determines that it would be in the best interest of the minor child, the court can appoint private counsel to represent the interests of that child uh, in a custody or visitation proceeding, and uh, as long as they comply with certain local rules. And this, you know, the appointment of that is is a big deal because now there's a special attorney who's only looking out for the interests of their child, acting as their advocate for this person who's too young to speak for themselves. And in certain cases, it's it's great because there's dueling facts from both sides and we can't figure out what's really going on and we need sort of a third person to act as a a neutral. Um, And, you know, this minor's counsel, they have a lot of latitude. They have, uh, you know, they have the latitude to speak to their reasonable access to their child. They have the ability to file motions and pleadings on behalf of the child. They have the right to uh, the child's medical, dental, and mental health records and health care records and access to their schools and uh, mental health professionals and all these other types of things. And um, it's a big deal for litigants because now not only are you trying to advocate your case to a judge, trying to advocate your case against the opposing side, you're not trying to convince this third person uh, who sometimes comes with a a strong sense of entitlement. You're trying to convince this third person that your position is right and that your interpretation of the laws are correct. And uh, it can create another level of um, of work and of concern for a lot of litigants. And um, people have to be aware of that, of that situation. How is it, uh, you know, how did you interpret the
0: situation, Vince? Well, you know, everybody who is a minor's counsel, represents children differently. They all have, you know, different philosophies. I mean, they're, they're all different people. You know, they have different experiences, they have different educational backgrounds, they have different, you know, life experiences. And, um, this particular attorney who's on our case and we won't mention, you know, any <laughs> names, uh, uh, I have to be honest with you, Raj. She's very professional, and she takes her job very seriously. And um, I honestly believe that she believes that she's doing what is right. The problem is, is that she and our position are 180 degrees apart. She's not on our side. And it's always bad for an attorney, you know, when the minor's attorney is not on your side. Um, But I have to, you know, even though she's not on our side, Raj, I have to tell you that, um, you know, after almost 30 years of doing this, I can tell you that, you know, she's probably, in my opinion, uh, you know, one of the better minor's attorneys that uh, I've been involved with on a case. Uh, Unfortunately, she's just not on my side. Um, so you know, I, I will tell you that I mean we we agree to disagree, uh, but she's doing her job and she's doing her job, you know the way that she thinks it should be done. And you know I I don't have any problem with that. It, it, it's hard to explain that to clients sometimes, you know that this person right, exactly is a uh, yeah this person is a professional. This person is an attorney. Uh, this person happens to be a certified family law specialist on top of everything else. Uh, okay. So it's clear that, um, you know, she is qualified. It's clear that um, she has done a lot of work in this case. You know, it's clear to me that uh, she does care about her position, um, which, you know, is not always, you know, the case with uh, with these attorneys. But I can say this lady is, you know, she's, she's top notch. She's just not on our side. And, um, you know, that happens sometimes. Um, and and it's hard to explain that to clients because if you explain that to clients, sometimes the clients will think, oh, you're taking her side. And, and, the, and no, I'm not taking her side. I'm fighting against her every time we go to court. It's just that, you know, the lady has a job to do and she's trying to do the job the best way that she thinks, the best way she can, the best that she thinks that she should, you know, the positions that she should be taking are best for the child. I have no doubt about that in this case. Um, I disagree with her. I think she's wrong, but, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm the last person to tell her how to do her job because that's not my job. And, you know, I don't tell other attorneys how to practice law. Um, but, you know, this happens. I mean, it's not the first time, it, you know, we've been on a case where the minor's attorney was against us, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last. You know, it's one of those 50-50 propositions. Sometimes the minor's attorney is with you. Sometimes the minor's attorney is against you. And, you know, as, as advocates for our client, it's, you know, we have to try to show the minor's attorney as well as show the judge that our client's position is the right position. But it's hard sometimes, especially when we these things to clients, you know, who are just furious at the minor's attorney, because um, the miner's attorney is not on their side. But it's all part of a process, you know. It's it's not a process, but it's, you know, a process, and it's one of the best, I think, ever invented, you know, in the course of human history. Uh, and, and, yes, there could be improvements, but, you know, uh, we're working with a system. And for right, the most part, I was... think the system works. You know, that's kind of the,
1: the interesting thing that, I think as attorneys we run into more than anything is, is the balance between uh, sort of client expectations and legal reality. Uh, and that was very much present in this situation. Um, there were a lot of legal realities between where the court was, where minors counsel, uh, you know, where opposing side's position on the case, um, and, and, you know, where our client's position was. And so, uh, I I think there's a way to handle that, you know, sort of at the initial stage of taking on representation, but uh, it's one of those it's one of those difficult things where aligning client expectations and explaining realities can can end up becoming a, a big cause of uh, dissension in in the case. And so I'm you know, what has been your experience or, or how do you navigate that from sort of beginning to end and explain to clients what to expect, what the legal realities are, and and how that jives with how they felt about the case?
0: You know, that's a very good question, Raj, because um, I'm always faced with that in in almost every case. And I think the best way to uh, approach it is to do a lot of listening. Um, You know, uh, maybe 10 years ago, Uh, I used to think that I was a a very good listener and I went to some trial lawyers training with the the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College and I realized or I saw that I wasn't a very good listener, you know, and so I listened to, you know, I practiced and I practiced listening to clients. If you listen really closely, you'll, you'll, you'll hear what clients are really trying to say. And the same is true for everyone. If you listen really closely to the minor's attorney, you'll get to the bottom of what their concerns are. And you know what? The same is true for family law judges. If you listen, and I'm not just talking about hearing what they're saying, I'm talking about feeling what they're saying, reading their body language, listening to their body language, you'll get to the bottom line. And once you know something, Um, what the big problem is or the big concern is, you know, I address that concern. Because I tell clients all the time, tell me what the number one thing is you want out of this case or number one thing you want me to do. And invariably the client says to me, oh, I got 10 things I want. I go, that's fine. Let's just work on the top one right now because it's going to be hard enough to get that. And then we can go to two and three and four and five and so on. So I try to f- listen to what the clients want. I try to find out what the client is really concerned about. And I address that. And, and, you know, I do that, with you know, with minors' attorneys. I do that with opposing attorneys. I do that with opposing parties. I do that with judges. Listen. You've got to Listen. It reminds me Raj of a story of an attorney that used to work with me at the firm. Uh he no longer works with me. He has his own practice. Uh he's a very good attorney. I remember being in a in a hearing one time um with him and uh there was evidence and argument and you know it was kind of heated. And uh before the hearing the day before I told him I said I don't want you to go into this hearing and take notes. I don't want you to take notes. I want you to listen. I said, because you can't listen and take notes at the same time. It just can't be done. So, during the heat of the battle, the judge asks him a question. The problem was he was writing down notes. And the judge asked the question again. He was still writing. He didn't realize the judge was talking to him. And it was one of those cases where it could have gone either way. But you had to be listening to the judge and address the judge's concerns. So after the judge asked the question the second time and he didn't respond, the judge says, okay, I guess, um, you know, like you're not going to answer that or you don't want to tell me the answer to that and the judge moves on. Oh, wow. At the end of the hearing, at the end of the hearing, the judge made a decision and referenced the fact that the attorney didn't address her major concern. And her major concern was the question that he was asked, she was asking our attorney, and he was busy taking notes. So the hearing, you know... Um, from up against our client uh, the decision and when we went outside and the dust cleared he and i were you know sitting in the court in the courthouse and he said you know i i, did, I didn't i don't know why the judge said i didn't address her most important concern he says i addressed everything and i looked at him i said well you didn't hear the judge ask you a question twice he said no And I said, the reason why you didn't hear is because you were taking notes and you weren't listening. That's how important listening in. And by the way, if you're not looking at the person, you're not listening to them. So when I'm in court, one of the things that I always do is I always listen to the judge. When I'm with my client, I always listen to my client. When I'm talking to the opposing attorney attorney, or the minor's attorney, I'm listening. I'm carefully listening. When a witness is on the stand, I I try to form a connection with them. Um, Someone told me very recently, Raj, in our office that he said, Vince, you're very good at getting witnesses to say what you want them to say on the witness stand. And I said, well, you know, I I have good luck with that, but the reason why I have good luck with that is because
2: I imagine
0: myself and the witness becoming one. Because I'm listening to them, can feel or sometimes hear or see where the witness may be dodging a question. I can hear or feel or see that a witness really wants to tell me the truth, but, you know, is afraid to. And you right. won't, you wouldn't be able to do that unless you were really listening. Anyway, I digress. I hope that answers your question on how I, you know, uh, deal with clients and setting expectations.
1: Well, I, I, you actually, you, you give me this guidance very often and, and I, it's paid off in, in spades more than I could tell you. But, um, you know, I, it's one of the things that I also deal with on a, on a daily basis. And, You know, like you said, you have to listen to the client and sort of get an understanding from them as to what really matters. And then when you figure out what really matters, you have to tell them how you're going to go about achieving it. And uh, I think when people listen and they understand and have a full comprehension of the realities, complexities, and um, expectations, it usually leads to a pretty smooth process. Uh, But like you said, the, the original key... It's a really good listen to them and understand what they really want and what's really going to make them happy. Um, and by doing that, I think, I, I think I'm able to navigate it pretty well.
0: Uh, you know, I want, tell you, I, t- I want to tell you a funny story about listening. It's true, though. It's a true story. Um, many years ago, a guy comes into my office and he says, um, you know, I'm looking for a divorce attorney. And so right away, I, I realized that he had talked to a few other attorneys. And so he began telling me his story. I didn't interrupt him for about an hour. I mean, he talked for about an hour. I mean, the mm-hmm. only thing I did was, you know, said, check my head, yes, I, you know, and he kind of grunted, uh huh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and he realized I was listening. At the end of the conversation of his story, he was all talked out. Um, and he says, "You know, I'm going to hire you." And I said, "Great." You know, while we're doing while we're doing the paperwork, I said, "What made you decide to hire me versus all of the other attorneys you talked to?" He goes, "You're the first person, that, first attorney, that listened to me." He says, "As a matter of fact, you're the first person that's ever listened to me in my life." And I go, "What do you mean?" He goes. My wife didn't listen to me, that's why we're getting to a divorce. <laughs> he says, My girlfriend doesn't my girlfriend doesn't listen to me. Children don't listen to me. My boss doesn't listen to me. And he went on and on about all the people in his life that just never listened to him. Wow. True story. True wow. story. You know, we have a we have a caller on the line. Let's take a call. Area code five six two in ending in seven three. Good evening. You're on with attorneys Vince Davis and Raj Matani. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello, caller. Welcome.
3: Good. How you doing? Thank you. Thank you for uh, taking my time. I I called um, you're the first attorneys that I called uh, regarding my my I guess custody case and um and it was just um it was just coincidence that you guys were having the your show tonight um well. To make a long story short, um, I already have a, a case in court already, um, uh, the mother of my child who never, been, we were never married, we were, we were never even boyfriend and girlfriend, we just dated, um, on and off, nothing exclusive, she basically wanted something serious, I never wanted something serious, I was always up front with her, um, and honest with her about that. Long story short, you know, we ended up, she ended up getting pregnant, um, and um, ever since that, it's been an upward battle as far as money. You know, I haven't been consistent with the child support, and um, and the thing is now it's um, it's gone from um, not allowing me to spend more time with my daughter because I'm, I'm, I'm I want to spend you know fifty at least uh, half half the summer every year with her, and she's just being difficult about it. But now it's. Uh, it's it's gotten a little bit more serious because she's um she's um she's manipulating my daughter and she's kind of uh, using her to uh, kind of go against me and um and it just it's just it's becoming a, a hassle where i think i think it's um i don't know i think it it's it's because i guess um child, i mean mental abuse or something like that because i it's her her fifteen-year-old daughter and and her family—they just—they're—they're just, they're, they're doing this to my daughter. She's eight years old, and 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 and, and I'm just—I'm um, afraid that um you know this this can affect her you know mentally, and and so I um i made a decision that that I want to fight for custody because um you know it, it's um it's uh it's just a bad situation for my daughter. I got I got bad feelings about it, and so um you know, that's, that's where I'm at right now.
0: Well, okay. why don't you tell him what parental alienation is?
1: Yeah. So, uh, caller, I didn't get your name by the, by the way, if you'd like to
0: close. Yes.
3: My name is uh, George. I'm calling from the city of Downey.
1: Okay. All right, George. Nice to meet you. Um, George there's this, Emerging philosophy in, in uh, psychology called parental alienation. And, it, and it's catching up to the law. But the law is trying to catch up to it, I should say, uh, a little bit. This is what happens when another parent does exactly what you think that you know, your, your daughter's mother is doing. Um, sort of feeding them information and, and creating the thought in the child's head that it's their own idea that they don't want to be around you. Uh, when in reality it's all this information that's being fed from the other side um and there are ways to combat against it so let me ask you a few questions uh,
3: do
2: okay.
1: you do you currently have a custody order uh in place
3: yes there's there's a there's a court order we have every other weekend she's the she's the she's the she she has uh physical custody and i'm mm-hmm. the uh, i'm the non custodial parent and um um, just to give you an example where it's at uh, uh, almost two years ago, um it was my weekend and um I was gonna pick up my daughter and they say when I got there to pick her up, uh, my daughter told me, you know, I don't I don't wanna
2: I don't wanna go with
3: you. And basically mm-hmm. she said, you know, you you can't force me to go with you. And I told her straight out, I told her, Sabelle, you know, what what are you doing? You've never talked to me like that before. What's going on? And she stood quiet and then all of a sudden her whole family got involved, mama's sister, her brother-in-law. I mean, she ended up calling the police because the family was claiming I was trying to kidnap my daughter. So I kept my cool. I waited for the police to arrive, and and long story short, I took my daughter because there's a court order, and and it's my weekend. Right, right. Well, just what did it it is that just this past Friday, um, I was on my way – to her doctors because she was claiming that she was sick and I kind of caught caught on to her to her little I guess um uh, tricks that she she uses my daughter uh calling me that she's sick on my weekend just so she can spend time with her so I wanted to find out for myself so um basically I went to to the doctor because she set up an appointment at three uh, you know at, at three thirty. so I said okay fine mm-hmm. I'll meet you at her doctors when I arrived um I told her, you know what, uh, I texted her on the way over there. I told her, you know what, I want I want to see paperwork. I want to see the diagnosis, what she had, because she had told me that she had been sick for three days, but she was a lot better, like by, on Thursday. And on Friday morning, my daughter calls me and tells me, you know what, I'm not feeling sick. I'm vomiting, this and that, whatever. So anyways, when I got to the lobby, she didn't have the paperwork with her. You know, she, just, she, she was there with her 15-year-old daughter. You know, she, trying, she, use, she uses her as a witness, so-called witness, saying that the doctor said um, that she needed to get rest and that she couldn't be around anybody. And she didn't have the paperwork, so I went upstairs, spoke to the doctor, and the doctor told me the contrary. The, the doctor even cleared her to go back to school. She just needed to be on a lot of liquids, you know, uh, and, and you know, soup and stuff like that. Anyway, long story short, she left. She left. And I told her, you know, are you still there at the, at, the, at the doctor? She said, no, I left. I go, okay, well, the doctor cleared her. I'm over to your house. Please have my daughter ready. I'm going to pick her up. And um, I even texted her. I told her, I hope, I hope that the same thing doesn't happen where the police had to come out. And sure enough, I get there, and she got in front of my daughter as I tried, tried to get her to come with me. I said, are you serious? I go, you're violating a court order? I go, you're going to make me call the police? I call the police. Police showed up, you know, and they spoke to her. And what happened? I ended up you know, taking my daughter, and, and all that time, she's she's um, you know pointing the finger at my face, you know, um, telling me, you know what, go get a job, you know, and and it, it, it's just it, it's it's stressing me out, you know, and and it, and yeah. you know, it's just, and all I want to spend more time with my daughter. That's it, you know.
1: Well, George, you know that's that's really unfortunate to hear, but um, even more unfortunate, it's something that we we hear every day from from people who are in a situation very similar to yours there's there's a mechanism by which we can uh, hold your uh, you know hold the mother accountable uh, with possible consent there's also a way that we can maybe make a motion for uh getting you to be the primary custodial parent because from the little bit of uh, story that you've just told me it do, it doesn't seem like you know your your child your daughter's mother is the one who's was willing to facilitate these exchanges, so um, I, I see here that
2: you you uh,
1: you know set up an appointment with our office. Um, you know, I'd love to have a further conversation with you online and and figure out if there's a way that we can help you. Uh, you know, in, in a court process.
3: Yeah, d- definitely for sure. Yeah, that's right because it, it's. Um, I never thought I would I would do this. You know, to to the mother of my uh, of my right. child. You know, because I told her in the past before because. You know, she, she, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a licensed security officer. and okay. And uh, it took a while for them to renew, renew my license, but in, it took long because of this whole child support thing, you know, and, and it also states right. on my guard card. It states due to, due to family, you know, support and stuff like that. And, and a guard card usually, it, it's usually a two-year license. Right. And they only extended it until till, till October of this year, so not even like six months. You know, and, right. and if I'm not caught up on my my child support, then it's going to affect you know my license and my job, and and also the you know the the one of the child support uh, representatives uh, called me and said that you know that I need to make a payment or else it's going to affect me. They're going to go after my license, my driver's license. So, and it's like, oh my god, you know, and and um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, George, we you know, you know, like,
1: Sorry, sorry, yeah, to cut
3: you off there. No, there's
1: you know. I, I I do appearances in the uh, child support courts all the time. I'm very familiar with the procedures there and how we can protect you in that in that realm as well. So uh, you know, there's
3: there's a way to sort of
1: clean up your issues, fix your problems. It's going to take a little bit of work, and it, and it might take a little bit of time, but there's a way to do it. So uh, you know, like I said, I I see that you're scheduled to talk with one of our our case managers, so. Um, you know, let's let's chat after the show, and then, uh, you know, we'd be happy to see if we can figure out how to help you.
3: Okay, definitely. Th- th- thank you very much.
0: All right. Thank you for calling, George. I appreciate it. We're going to take thank another you. call right now um, from area code 213, ending in 55. Five. Hello, you're oh, on yes. with divorce. Yes. Hello.
4: Yes, hi. Can you hear me?
0: Loud and clear,
4: oh perfect um, I'm calling for an advice um about child custody matter go ahead oh uh, okay um, I'm having trouble to um renew my uh, son's passport. My son is fifteen years old and he was born in u s um but um I wanted to travel with him to overseas. I bought the ticket, and I went to the um, uh, passport agency, and they said uh, I need to have a sole custody, which I thought I did uh, because my I was divorced in 2007 uh, in Nevada, and uh, it, it, I have the divorce decree, but it turns out it said... Um, the divorce the Nevada court has no jurisdiction to make any um judgment about my uh son's uh custody even though the um legal like the father um father of my son is the guy who was was married to um saying he he wants the um uh, what do you call it, uh, DNA testing done because he does not believe he is the biological child. But he knows he's not the child, so we, I have the DNA testing says that he's not the father. And um, uh, I went to the um, uh, Los Angeles court last week and I tried to um, start the claim in there but they denied. They said, well, you have to go to uh, uh, Nevada court, so they're supposed to finish uh, whatever they started about the case. But I thought, well, I have the divorce decree. It it was done 2007, the divorce is final, so why should I go to Nevada court? And I called a couple of... uh, uh, people and uh, they also tells me that you have to go back to the court and explain again, and they should, you know, allow you to file for um, custody. And um, I went back to the court uh, yesterday, and they saying, "Well, I can file the case, but they're not sure they can pursue, like you know, go ahead with it." So I don't understand why. What I should do should I my uh son's biological father lives in Mongolia, and he's saying that well uh, the divorce decree clearly states that uh Nevada court has no jurisdiction, and because the child um they believe the child was living in Mongolia during that time, so we're thinking well if the court the system is so slow here they don't want to work with me so maybe just file this whole custody in Mongolia like overseas Mm. that's my uh, the question is can I file it in Mongolia and have the court make a decision in Mongolia and show it to the uh, all I need is his passport (laughs) (laughs)
2: You know, so
0: we can travel. Yeah. Lars, did you understand her question?
4: Uh, I, I think yeah.
1: through through, mm-hmm. through that uh, long-winded story, I think I, I picked out the parts that are critical. Uh, and I'm sorry, ma'am, I didn't get your first name.
4: My name is Era, E-R-A.
1: Okay, Era, okay. Era nice to meet you. Thanks for calling the show. Um,
4: sure.
1: Sure. The problem that you have is a jurisdictional issue, and getting the passport, uh, there are two ways to, there are several ways to do it, but the the main ways to do it are to either get a sign-off from the other custodial parent on the uh, passport application, or get a court order that, you know, gives that parent's authorization away. You have a jurisdictional issue in that you don't know where to get that authorization. Am I correct? You think it, you thought the whole case was in Nevada, but then... You're here in California and California is telling you you have to go back to Nevada. Right. Based on what you've based on what you've told me, I think your case uh-huh. is in Nevada. I think you need to go oh, to either and I I couldn't say more until I saw your papers and uh, you know, um, please feel free to call us after the show and we'd be happy to set up a a, a consultation I'll I'll give them a look. But um you would have to, in my opinion, you'd have to go back to Nevada, uh, file the case, either re- file a request for order or uh, you know, the procedural step that is required in Nevada, and I have some attorneys that I can refer you to if that's necessary, but uh, you would have to do it in Nevada, file for that, and either get the court to clarify their mistake or give you the order and the authorization, um, and that would be the way that you can go about doing it.
4: Um, I contacted two uh, attorneys in Nevada okay. and um, I, they had me read it on the phone uh, the conclusion part okay. and they both said we are because my son was continuously living in California past six months Nevada have no jurisdiction over my son and I have to go back to the Los Angeles court and then filed the um, child custody new case they told me that uh, the um, divorce decree divorce is final you have Mm -hmm. nothing to do they misunderstood whoever they didn't even let me file the lady was just sitting there she said no so I don't know if she was right or not in Los Angeles court so if I just did the nevada uh,
1: did the Nevada court ever make a determination of paternity to your child
4: uh, can you say again
1: did the Nevada court ever make a determination as to who your child's father is? Has there been a declared father uh
4: no um it it, it just says they have no jurisdiction over uh determined issues. Uh, pertaining um, to child custody, visitation, or child support relevant to Justin Robinson, I'm sorry, relevant to the child based upon the allegations contained within plaintiff's complaint for divorce in event defendant seeks and obtains valid jurisdiction in Nevada for determination of custody visitation and support issues relevant to the child to this court finds that plaintiff has not set for sufficient facts in his complaint to be entitled to DNA paternity testing before any such orders entered. That's what it says. Okay. I hope you understand. That.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I got the gist of it. Um, you know, like I said, I, I'll have to take a look at your papers maybe to give you a more complete answer. You know, there, there might be a mechanism within the California courts that we could utilize uh, uh, to have California establish, uh, establish jurisdiction over your child if you meet the residency requirements. So um, yeah, give, our show a call. give our office a call after the show. Let's set up an appointment, and uh, let's see if we can help okay.
2: you
4: out. Uh, okay. Thank you so much. Thank Great. you for calling, ma'am. Thank you. I will call.
0: Hey, Raj, we're we're running out of time, and I did want to try to get to the prenuptial and postnuptial. Um, you know, at least touch on it. Maybe we can keep sure. talking about it in next week. But we have about twelve minutes left, so talk to me about prenuptial and postnuptial. Sure, uh, Vince.
1: I I before. You know, leaning on some of your experience, did you have anything to add to that last college question? I think jurisdiction is always an issue that we run into uh, with a lot of our cases, and so I wanted to see if you had anything to say.
0: You know, jurisdictional questions can be very tricky, and they're very fact-specific. What I like to do is I like to sit down with the client Get all the facts before I can make a call as to – and maybe even do some, you know, a little research. You know, there's nothing yeah. like the old good old UCCJEA <laughs> and all of those issues yes. about, um, you know, which state should you be in. Um, so I quite follow her story, honestly. It got mm-hmm. a little – convoluted for me and it's one of those things where I need to sit down with her and map it out on a piece of paper Mm -hmm. you know so I can really figure out you know where she should go um her 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 issue can be easily resolved I think she just needs to sit down with us and so we can go in detail and and develop her story and you know learn about her story
1: I I think that's a great plan of attack. Then so let's talk about prenups and postnups what do you say? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um the reason this this topic came to my mind this week, I was actually at a uh, I got a a, a friend of mine's uh, engagement party over the weekend and uh I was uh you know, we had stayed the night at his his family's house and his father comes to me in the morning uh and starts asking me about prenuptial agreements. <laughs> And I said, well, this is a fine time to do this in front of your son. You're, you're a very uh, prudent father. But he was actually asking for a, for a client, for a, an insurance client. To and um, he told me that the insurance client uh, was refusing to get married uh, because he, he was told by somebody that prenuptial agreements are invalid and that he sort of can't protect himself. And I started, I, I genuinely started laughing to myself because, Said that's 100 percent not the, that's 100 percent not the case. You know that's um, definitely not the truth at all. Uh, prenuptial agreements are, are, you know, one of the foundations about how to protect uh, protect marital relationships uh, that we have in California. They are governed by what's called uh, the California Uniform Prenuptial Agreement Act, and essentially, what a prenuptial agreement is. Uh, is a contract between two parties who are entering into uh, what's mostly a financial relationship uh, in getting married and how they want to go about uh, categorizing their assets, uh, their potential incomes, how they want to uh, devise spending or obligations to the community, things of that nature. And the purpose of it is is that in the event the parties divorce or end their relationship, that they can either control how that process goes or how these assets are to be divided. Uh, As many of our listeners might know, uh, California is a no-fault state, meaning that if somebody cheats on somebody, no matter
2: the reasoning
1: why the relationship fell apart, it doesn't have any impact on the disposition of property. And when you have property, everything acquired from the date of marriage to the data separation, except that which is given by uh, gift or inheritance uh, or other divides, is all community property. And so, uh, whether you have not a lot to your name or a, a very large estate, it's sometimes prudent to go through it and determine how you're going to divide out these big financial steps or how you're going to control the costs of your divorce. Uh, potentially by going to mediation or something like that, um, and, and controlling this—you know—what could be an expensive way to end a relationship. And so, when people start talking about, they think that prenuptial agreements are invalid or can't be enforced. What they're really talking about are the contractual aspects of what could invalidate a prenuptial agreement. So there, there are a couple ways in which a, a prenuptial or even post agreement can be um, deemed invalid. Um, essentially, the contract has to be fair. So there's a couple things you can't do. You cannot... Uh, you cannot... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? You can't limit the amount of child support that would be given to the child. That's a uh, state policy, and you can only contract to maybe give more support than California guidelines might allow, but you cannot contract to give less child support. Uh, The contract or the prenuptial agreement also has to be voluntary. So there's some strict guidelines about how the contract is presented, opportunities to review the contract, uh, the ability of the uh, other party to seek independent counsel to review it, make changes if they want, and uh, to not... At any point, have the perception that one party is being forced into signing the agreement. It must be 100% uh, voluntary. There are also uh, uh, some disclosure requirements. So that means that both parties have to be have to uh, memorialize that they gave full disclosure as to their entire financial position and financial obligations. And the reason for this is is that Uh, Even in a normal divorce process, both parties are required to make those disclosures. Uh, There's called uh, preliminary disclosures and final disclosures. And even in the divorce process, you're given the opportunity to discover and force people to reveal things that they think that they're hiding. So um, when doing a prenuptial agreement, you have to comply with uh, with these standards because you're removing the divorce process. And so you have to make sure that full disclosure is met. Uh, the last the last factor that you have to consider is that uh, is for spousal support as well uh, you know there can be no part of the contract that's deemed what's called unconscionable or unfair uh, what that means is that there can be no terms in the contract that are so grossly unfair no matter how much notice or opportunity one side was given uh, you know that can be considered as valid so when people are considering get, getting married or, or considering what the ramifications of that choice are, getting a prenuptial agreement is a smart way to sort of disclose your whole financial position, disclose uh, what each side's expectations of financial responsibility are. And if you decide to put that down, put pen to paper and make that a part of your, uh, make that a part of your marriage, then uh, you, know, you just have to make sure that you comply with the, Contractual requirements uh, and uh, notary requirements of it, and then they're a hundred percent valid
0: Where do you find most people running a foul in this process?
1: Uh, you know, it's not, uh, the biggest part where people run a foul are actually in uh, notarizing the document so you you also have to both parties have to uh, be present and have a notary uh, validate the agreement. So, um, you, you know, if two parties get together and they just sign a prenuptial agreement, uh, you're going to get into a big contract, big battle uh, when you file for divorce as to the validity of that contract. And so, uh, having it notarized leaves no question as to whether, you know, that this was a valid agreement. Both parties were there, signed in front of a witness, and that. The document that is notarized is in fact the representative prenuptial agreement. The other place where people run afoul is in the disclosure area. So uh, the party drafting the prenuptial agreement has to give the other side a seven-day window to review the contract, to review the prenuptial agreement, um, sort of have it uh, evaluated by independent counsel. And then if the other side chooses not to have it evaluated by independent counsel, they have to sign a separate agreement, which should also be notarized, acknowledging that they're choosing not to do so. So um, in those two big areas, or, which are really validating that this is the agreement of the two sides, that uh, you know, those are the areas where people run afoul the most.
0: I see, I see. What about post-nuptial?
1: agreements are sort of covered under this, the same umbrella. It's essentially a contract between the two sides. So uh, if by following these same standards and procedures of um, disclosure and enforceability and uh, not uh, uh, doing certain factors such as limiting child support, uh, it's again, it's a contract. And uh, unless the other side can prove that there's some invalid portion of the contract, your post-nuptial agreement should also be available or also be enforceable. Uh, and even if it goes into the divorce process, really where it comes up is, uh, you know, parties will argue, well, hey, you know, we had an agreement that this house or this bank account or this kind of, this kind of thing was not, uh, was not under the community property laws. And if you can show the enforceable contract or uh, that it was properly transmuted, then you shouldn't have any problems as well.
0: Very good. I'm, Raj, I'm going to have to cut you short. We're running out of time. Maybe we can get uh, into a little bit more detail next Wednesday at uh, 7 to 8 when we do our next uh, session of this talk radio show. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, you know, Raj, I'm still getting those calls for people interested in mediation. So there's those, there's the folks out there listening who... Uh, want to get more information about mediation, uh, mediating their divorce instead of uh, filing a lawsuit about their divorce. So, um, you know, Raj, maybe I or both of us can or you can write a, a short article, a blog, so to speak, that we can put out there was and talk about, talk about the, you know, the pluses and the negatives of doing that mediation. Next week, Raj, let's continue our talk about prenuptial and postnuptial agreements because they're a little bit more complicated than we were able to get, to, you know, in uh, into to this evening. And of course, we'll talk about um, continuing to talk about child custody and visitation. And you know, I'd like to talk a little bit more about spousal support and child support. So, Raj, I'll see you next week on the radio, seven to eight p.m. Bye, bye. Thanks.